welcome back to Mindful Minds. This week, we are going to be going through part two of the Body Keeps the Score breakdown. Um, last week, I read parts one through two, and then I kind of summarized it, broke it down. And this week, we're going to be doing that with parts three through four of the book, um, which are pages 107 to 201. So um, I've mentioned this before, but the book is a five-part book. So um, this week will be three and four, and then next week will be part five, which is about treatment. And then um, this week, the title of the chapters, um, you're going to be hearing book flipping. I said that last episode, but I'm going to be reading a lot from the book. Um, So this week, um, the chapters are part three was the minds of children. And part four is the imprint of trauma. So those are the two that we're going to be going over this time. Um, I did some disclaimers at the beginning of last episode, and I'm going to be doing the same for this episode. So um, this is uh, a breakdown of the book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, my version is published in 2014. Uh, this book is very, very in-depth, and it reads like a textbook. It also has uh, no trigger warnings, nor does it warn the reader when things like rape or violence will be described. If that is something that is triggering for you, I would be careful about reading it. Um, in parts three and four, the pages that I'm going to be summarizing today, there are intense stories of trauma, including rape slash war violence, childhood abuse, molestation, and medical trauma, specifically a C-section. So beware. Um, for this episode, the trigger warnings will be PTSD, trauma, sexual abuse, childhood abuse, molestation slash incest, self-harm, which is time-stamped in the com- or in the um, description, neglect, relational abuse, war trauma, death, and medical trauma, and then kind of general violence. That is a trigger warning for both this episode and the book. Um, I am not going to go as in-depth as the book does when it comes to specific situations, but if you are reading the book, that is a overall trigger warning for parts three and four of this book. Um, and he goes into some pretty intense stories of trauma. So just be aware. And then the second hand of, or the second part of this disclaimer is I did not write this book, nor am I claiming these ideas as my own. This book was written by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and it is entirely his. I'm just breaking it down because of the sheer density of the material. And I feel like I'm in a space where I have the emotional and mental capacity to read this, but I wish that I had the information a lot earlier. I just didn't really have the space to consume it yet. So my hope is that breaking down the material will help others gain the knowledge without having to expel as much energy. Um, I'll also be quoting Vanderkolk, but I'll make it really clear when I do so. I'll be giving page numbers as well. And then I will also be linking the uh, link to purchase the book. And I highly suggest that you do and you read it on your own. As much as I'm going to be reviewing the highlights of these parts, um, there's so much that I won't be able to cover that's so beneficial for trauma survivors and so informational. And um, I would really highly suggest that you read it on your own if you feel like you have the headspace to be able to do so or you're in the headspace where you're able to do so. Um, we're going to get right into it. Um, I feel like I have a, a good grasp on how to do this. Last episode was a little choppy because there's a lot of information, a lot of reading. Um, I feel like this episode is maybe going to be a little bit have better flow to it. Um I'm going to give you the outline of what we're going to go through, and then we're going to hop right in because I have so many notes on this. These these two parts were very, very dense, and there was so much good information. So we are going to talk about the history of the study of trauma in society, which gives some really good context. We're going to talk about attachment and attunement. 
um, childhood abuse, mental maps, so relational maps and emotional maps, um, trauma reactions and symptoms, memory, dissociation, and diagnostics, and specifically quite a bit about the DSM. So we're going to get right into it. Um, we are going to start with um, history of the study of trauma, and I am going to read some excerpts for you. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there's going to be some page flipping. Um, there's going to be a lot of excerpts, and there's going to be some relation back to my own experiences. So starting off with the history of the study of trauma in society, the book talks about um, the early studies of trauma, specifically with uh, Jean-Martin Charcot. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. So if I butcher these names, apologies. Um, basically he goes through the early kind of founding fathers of psychology that, um, addressed trauma as a legitimate issue. Um, they didn't necessarily use the word trauma. Some of them did, but, um, so Jean Martin Charcot, Charcot, we're just going to call him Charcot, um, had a patient named Lee Log. And um, this patient developed paralysis after an accident. Um, And he didn't have paralysis due to the physical harm caused by the accident, which was interesting. And that was the study that I found that was most beneficial from Charcot was this patient was exhibiting symptoms of a physical injury, but it was a mental injury. And he started kind of acknowledging like, huh, (laughs) where is this coming from? Um, and what Vander Kolk says is, quote, instead of remembering the accident, he developed paralysis of his legs, unquote. That's on page 179. Um, end quote, not unquote. Come on, Fina. But yeah, so that was a, that's just a little, little blip of Charcot. And then moving on to Pierre Genet, um, which the majority of Pierre Genet's information is on page 181 or it starts on page 181. Um, Vanderkolk says that Janae was the first to point out the differences between narrative memory, the stories people tell about trauma, and trauma memory itself, end quote, which that's on page 181. Um, specifically, a patient of Janae's, Irene, cared for her sick mother, and then when her mom died, she had intense amnesia of her death. Um, couldn't remember her death. Like, I like had serious uh, issues remember it even happening. And so she was very confused as to where her mother was, despite the fact that she was with her when her mom died. Um, And Vanderkolk says, traumatized people simultaneously remember too little and too much. On the one hand, Irene had no conscious memory of her mother's death. She could not tell the story of what had happened. On the other hand, she was compelled to physically act out the events of her mother's death. End quote. That's on page 181. So these early psychologists um, started to have patients that were exhibiting symptoms of trauma, but trauma was not something that society had even begun to address yet. And then we move into Freud. Um, basically, Freud, being the narcissistic know-it-all that he that he was, um, I'm not a Freud fan, so apologies if you are. Um, obviously, we know that Freud and you know, psychoanalysis were two peas in a pod, right? Um, Freud basically acknowledged uh, trauma. I don't know if he used the word trauma, but he acknowledged the deep emotional uh, 
reaction that would come to very intense events. And he declared that finding words for your trauma and retelling it, so basically talk therapy, working through your trauma by talking about it to your therapist, a.k.a. going through psychoanalysis with him, um, resolves your trauma. Um, That's one of the biggest issues I have with Freud is he – and that's why I also hate that we call him, like, the founding father of psychology because he wasn't, and it pisses me off. That's a whole other conversation, but I find it so pompous that like so many of his theories have been dispelled and honestly, like other people have psychoanalyzed him and been like, hey, bro, like so many of your theories were just due to your own trauma and your own insecurities and issues, but yet he's so revered and it really bothers me. Um, But yeah, so he kind of set this precedent of, well, you just need to talk through your trauma and then you're fine. So then we're going to skip ahead a little bit and we move to World War I. Um, you have soldiers coming back from war and being traumatized, but society doesn't know what trauma is yet. We haven't gotten there yet. Um, and the term for that that they used was shell shock. Um, and interesting enough, there was a lot of different movements from the government to eradicate the diagnosis of shell shock because shell shock was actually a psychological diagnosis at that point so that they wouldn't have to compensate soldiers and help them recover from the trauma that they faced while they were at war. Um, if, if you do have the space finances to, you know, buy this book and read it, this part is super interesting. Um, this information is specifically on page 187. Because it gives so much context as to the fact that society and specifically the U.S. government for a very long time has been shutting down resources and trying to do whatever they can to ignore the problems of the people and just keep pumping out money, victories, success, etc. Um, so this whole thing that we're going through right now as a society in 2021 of – people dying and COVID and, you know, paid family leave and all this stuff that's going on. And people, there's a lot of people who are like shocked and it's like, no, no friends, the government has not had our back for a long time. That's not a new thing. Um, and this is an example of it. Um, troops started requesting pension, um, and actually ended up protesting and, um, the government refused to pay it. And they actually like pushed vets out of their protests and arrested some of them. Um, and then there was a book, which I'm going to read this part for you guys. So it says on page 188, while politics and medicine turned their backs on the returning soldiers, the horrors of the war were mem- memorialized in literature and art. In All Quiet on the Western Front, a novel about the war experiences of frontline soldiers by the German writer Eric Maria Remark, the book's protagonist, Paul Bomber, spoke for an entire generation. Quote, I am aware that I, without realizing it, have lost my feelings. I don't belong here anymore. I live in an alien world. I prefer to be left alone, not disturbed by anybody. They talk too much. I can't relate to them. They are only busy with superficial things. End quote. Um, that's an end quote within a quote. So this is still a quote. Um, published in 1929, the novel instantly became an international bestseller with translations in 25 languages. The 1930 Hollywood film version won the Academy Award for Best Picture. 
But when Hitler came to power a few years later, All Quiet on the Western Front was one of the first degenerate books the Nazis burned in public square in front of the Humboldt University in Berlin. Apparently, awareness of the devastating effects of war on soldiers' minds would have constituted a threat to the Nazis' plunge into another round of insanity. Denial of the consequences of trauma can wreak havoc within the social fabric of society. The refusal to face the damage caused by the war and the intolerance of weakness played an important role in the rise of fascism and militarism around the world in the 1930s. Uh, end quote. And then a little further down the page on 188, um, Van der Kolk writes, German society in turn dealt ruthlessly with its own traumatized war veterans who were treated as inferior creatures. This cas cascade of humiliations of the powerless set the stage for the ultimate debasement of human rights under the Nazi regime, the moral justification for the strong to vanquish the inferior, the rationale, rationale for ensuring the war. End quote. Um, I found that really interesting. That's page 188-29. Um, because, like I just mentioned, all that that's saying <laughs> is that this... This whole um, narrative of denying that trauma is legitimate, denying that it deserves space in society, denying that it deserves resources or acknowledgement, it goes back so far, which I just found really interesting because I think that as someone in 2021, there are so many people who are older um, that preach the, you know, I mentioned this in the last episode, preach the whole buck up, like, you know, especially for men, um, you know, don't, don't be a girl, like don't be a pussy, like all these kind of things where there's so much, um, shame uh, towards people who show emotion. And specifically when someone is trying to process their trauma, like they get branded as like a sissy. Um, and it was just very interesting to see if that goes back really far. Um, so yeah, that, that whole thing. I also just was not aware of the historical, uh, context. Um, so society basically look, has looked down on the traumatized for a very long time. Um, then there was some commentary by the feminist theorist, Germaine Greer, um, which I'm going to read a, a quote from her. And I also would just like to point out that, um, <laughs> Feminist theory and feminist psychology uh, really tends to lead the charge on a lot of corners that were turned and uh, perspectives that were changed. So go women. Uh, okay, so on page 189, uh, the feminist theorist Jermaine Greer wrote about the treatment of her father's PTSD after World War II. Quote, when the medical officers examined men exhibiting severe disturbances, they almost invariably found that the root cause in pre-war experience, or they almost invariably found the root cause in pre-war experience. The sick men were not first grade fighting material. The military proposition is that it is not war, which makes men sick, but that sick men cannot fight wars. End quote. That's on page 189. That is one of my favorite quotes from this chapter. Um, because that is still something that is super common in society, not in the context of war as much, but in the context of it's not life that makes people hurt. It's that 
like weak people can't really handle life. And that's such bullshit. And it puts so much shame on people for things that their bodies are reacting to. Um, yeah, that's just, I found that very validating. Um, and then on page 189, Vander Kolk writes, doctors shape how their patients communicate their distress. When a patient complains about terrifying nightmares and his doctor orders a chest x-ray, the patient realizes he'll get better care if he focuses on his physical problems. Like my relatives who fought in or were captured during World War II, most of these men were extremely reluctant to share their experiences. My sense was that neither the doctors nor their patients wanted to revisit the war, end quote. That's on page 190. So, um, tying that into everything, essentially these men started coming back and focusing on like medical issues compared to psychological issues because they, I think they were trying to find some sort of um, legitimate reason for why they were feeling the way that they were, um, which is just so sad to me and so frustrating. Um, and so, yeah. That is just bummer. Um, then we move into 1974, and this is all just history of trauma. Um, in 1974, there was a book that came out that basically supported incest, <laughs> which yikes, big yikes. Um, so that's on page 190. Vander Kolk writes, in 1974, Friedman and Kaplan's comprehensive textbook of psychiatry stated that incest is in, in extremely rare and does not occur in more than one out of 1.1 million people. As we have seen in chapter two, this authoritative textbook then went on to extol the possible benefits of incest. Quote, such incestuous activity diminishes the subject's change of psychosis and allows for a better adjustment to the external world. The vast majority of them were none worse for the experience, end quote. Um, so we're just like really taking hits in the history of, of mental health and trauma. We have people um, diminishing the reality of trauma and the legitimacy of trauma. We have uh, psychologists coming out and supporting incest and acting like it has benefits. Um, and then we move into 1990. Um, uh, or actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to continue a quote there. So back to the incest thing. On page 191, Vander Kolk writes, how misguided those statements were became obvious when the ascending ascendant feminist movements – once again, telling you guys, feminist movements, they are at the start of things. <laughs> Combined with the awareness of trauma and returning combat veterans, emboldened tens of thousands of survivors of childhood sexual abuse, domestic abuse, and rape to come forward, end quote. And um, that's on page 191. So basically, people started coming forward, and it was like, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe it's not one in every 1.1 million. Perhaps it is a lot more common than that. But when you are a survivor – and you see on Facebook in 2021, um, boomers, for <laughs> lack of a better term, hopping on Facebook and saying, oh, like it, it's one in, you know, so many people, like, it, you know, it doesn't happen to everybody. There, there is a route where that um, line of thinking came from. It has been around for a very long time of this idea that abuse is rare and trauma is for the weak. And, um, if people come forward about something, they're probably lying because it really doesn't happen that often. This all is rooted in some serious history. Um, so then we move forward to 1990 and there were some serious issues with things that came forward about memory. So on page 191, um, 
It says, Vanderkolk writes, uh, that proved to be the case for by the early 1990s, articles had started to appear in many leading newspapers and magazines in the United States and Europe about a so-called false memory syndrome in which psychiatric patients supposedly manufactured elaborate false memories of sexual abuse, which they then claimed had lain dormant dormant, um, for many years before being recovered. What was striking about these articles was the certainty with which they stated that there was no evidence that people remember trauma any differently than they do ordinary events. I vividly recall a phone call from a well-known news weekly in London telling me that they planned to publish an article about traumatic memory in their next issue, asking me whether or not I had any comments on the subject. I was quite enthusiastic about their question and told them that memory loss for traumatic events had been first studied in England well over a century earlier. I mentioned John Eric Erickson and Frederick Meyer's work on railway accidents in the 1860s and 1870s and Charles Samuel Myers and W.H.R. Rivers' extensive studies of memory problems in combat soldiers of World War I. I also suggested they look at an article published in The Lancet in 1944, which described the aftermath of the rescue of the entire British Army from the beaches of Dunkirk in 1940. More than 10% of the soldiers who were studied had suffered from major memory loss after the evacuation. The following week, the magazine told its readers that there was no evidence whatsoever that people sometimes lose some or all memory for traumatic events. That's on page 191. So essentially, like I said, these ideas, these really shitty um, opinions and mindsets on psychology and trauma, they have some really deep roots. Um, There are still so many people that will argue with me about my trauma and my assault because I didn't remember either of my assaults until significantly after, um, like years after for one of them. And there are still people who think that that's entirely bullshit. And it's funny because it comes from really um, poor sources. And when you actually look at the psychology and the science behind it, it's pretty clear. But people tend to... um, like to go with the easy route of not actually doing the research, which I mean, we've all seen during COVID. Um, But yeah, I just think it's interesting. I do think that that probably comes from um, if there are as many survivors as people say they are, there are um, as many victims, then there has to be more abusers than people think that there are. And I think that this line of thinking in which people don't believe survivors does come from, it comes, it comes from some history and some serious um, issues back in, um, you know, in the last hundred years. But I think it also comes from the idea that people don't want to believe that the world is that fucked up. And people don't want to believe that people that they know can be that violent and evil. Um, and so they kind of just put their blinders on and pretend that it didn't happen. And... Um, as a survivor, I, I know firsthand how wildly upsetting that is and how invalidating and heartbreaking it is to have someone. Um, I mean, I lost a lot of friends when I came forward about my assault. Um, and I had a lot of people take my assaulter's side. Some of them came up, came to me after um, months after and said that they realized that they were wrong, but a lot of them didn't. And I think that the reality is It is really painful to watch someone choose comfort over validating the truth that you experienced Um, and the objective truth. (laughs) Um, But yeah, 
So that's kind of some history and some context. I found that validating. Maybe you won't, but I found that validating because um, it, it showed some context and some some serious um, reasoning behind why people think the way that they do. And that made me feel a little bit better. Um, so then we move into attachment and attunement. There is a lot about attachment and attunement um, on in this uh, book, um, specifically these parts, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. But I'm not going to go through all of it because that would take me forever. Um, so I'm just going to go through a little bit. So starting off with um, Bessel has a great quote about um, self-care and attachment. Um, so on page 112, he says, as we grow up, we gradually learn to take care of ourselves, both physically and emotionally, but we get our first lessons in self-care from the way that we are cared for. Mastering the skill of self-regulation depends to a large degree on how harmonious our early interactions with our caregivers are. Children whose parents are reliable sources of comfort and strength have a lifetime advantage, a kind of buffer against the worst that faith can fate can hand them, end quote. Um, I'm not even going to explain that. That doesn't need to be explained. Um, and then we move into uh, different attachment styles. So there is avoidant, anxious, and then disorganized is the one the ones that he goes over. Um, avoidant, he says, quote, in one pattern called avoidant attachment, the infants look like nothing really bothers them. They don't cry when their mother goes away and they ignore her when she comes back. However, this does not mean they are unaffected. My colleagues and I call this pattern dealing but not feeling, end quote. That is on page 118. So dealing but not feeling is avoidant attachment. Then he moves on to anxious attachment, which he says, in another pattern called anxious or ambivalent attachment, the infants constantly draw attention to themselves by crying, yelling, clinging, or screaming. They are feeling but not dealing, end quote. That's also on page 118. So avoidant is dealing but not feeling, and anxious is feeling but not dealing. And then he moves into another form of attachment. So that is called disorganized attachment. I'm going to read the excerpt, an excerpt on this, not the excerpt. Um, because I think that he explains it better than, than I could. So he says, some 20 years ago, Mary Main and her Carly colleagues at Berkeley began to identify a group of children, about 15% of those that they studied, who seemed to be unable to figure out how to engage with their caregivers. The critical issue turned out to be that the caregivers themselves were a source of distress or terror to the children. Children in the situation have no one to turn to, and they are faced with an unsolvable dilemma. Their mothers are simultaneously necessary for survival and a source of fear. They can neither approach the secure and ambivalent strategies, shift their attention, the avoidance strategy, nor flee. If you observe such children in a nursery school or attachment laboratory, you see them look towards their parents when they enter the room and then quickly turn away. Unable to choose between seeking closeness and avoiding the parent, they may rock on their hands and knees, appear to go into a trance, freeze with their arms raised, or get up to greet their parent and then fall to the ground. Not knowing who is safe or whom they belong to, they may intensely they may be intensely affectionate with strangers or may trust nobody. May, Maine, Mary, um, called this pattern disorganized attachment. Disorganized attachment is fright without solution, end quote. That is on page 118 to 119. Um, and he goes into what would cause this type of attachment. Um, there's parental abuse. So obviously that can cause this type of attachment because 
if your parents are necessary for you to survive, but they're also the reason why you're terrified, that normally that normally links back to some sort of, you know, abusive behavior. So there's that, there's abuse that could cause a disorganized attachment. There is also a form of neglect that can root in parents being preoccupied with their own trauma, which I found very interesting because as a nanny and just working with kids for the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of different types of parenting styles and, um, I kind of have my, my caregiving style, um, that I've worked really hard to hone and, um, be intentional about because, I am a caregiver in these kids' lives, and I want to make sure that I'm being intentional about the way that I'm doing so. But I've definitely, um, I've definitely been around when I've seen parents that are going through a lot and their kiddos suffer from it. Um, or even, you know, I've worked in preschools, I've worked in nurseries, I've seen a lot of different types of attachments and a lot of different types of reactions from kiddos. And I found this one really interesting because I, I've seen it firsthand. Um, so. Vanderkolk writes, parental abuse is not the only cause of disorganized attachment. Parents who are preoccupied with their own trauma, such as domestic abuse or rape, or the recent death of a parent or sibling, may also be too emotionally unstable and inconsistent to offer too much comfort and protection. While all the parents need all the help they can get to raise secure children, traumatized parents in particular need help to be attuned to their children's needs. End quote. And that is on page 120. I think that probably part of that is the fact that we've we've talked about trauma, right? And how it makes you often unaware of your own needs, unaware of the way to take care of yourself, unaware of how to become balanced. And if you throw a kiddo into that mix, now you have two people that you're trying to take care of, find balance for, um, interpret their needs, especially when it's babies. Um, babies are really hard to read sometimes. Sometimes they have very clear cues that are easy and, you know, it's like, oh, you, you know, twitch this leg when you're really tired. And then that way, you know, sometimes their cues change every week and it's so confusing. Um, and if you're trying to figure that out for your kid and you're also feeling unstable as a human, like that's a lot. Um, in one study, Vanderkolk writes that one group of mothers seemed to be too preoccupied with their own issues to attend to their infants. They were often intrusive and hostile. They alternated between rejecting their infants and acting as if they expected them to respond to their needs, end quote. And that is on page 122. I found that really interesting, too, because I've, I've seen that firsthand with parents where they're going through something and they get really aggressive and angry towards very small children that don't have the mental capacity to understand where that anger is coming from. Um, And it becomes very codependent where now there is an expectation for the kiddos to take care of their parents. Um, I think we see that in, you know, we've seen that demonstrated in media and movies and that's a lot of pressure to put on a child. And it's, it only makes sense that that would then traumatize the child. Um, So he also talks about a sense of security And if you are in a disorganized attachment style, a lot of times, like they said, it's, it's a fright without solution. So you don't really have that internal sense of security. So Vanderkolk writes, if you have no internal sense of security, it is difficult to distinguish between safety and danger. If you feel chronically numbed out, potentially dangerous situations may make you feel alive. 
If you conclude that you must be a terrible person because why else would your parents have treated you that way, you start expecting other people to treat you horribly. You probably deserve it anyways. There's nothing you can do about it. When disorganized people carry self-perceptions like these, they are set up to be traumatized by subsequent experiences, end quote. And that's on page 121. So essentially it starts this really vicious cycle where a lot of times traumatized people will then enter traumatizing situations because what else are you supposed to do? Like, that's what you're used to. That's what you've learned. Um, and then it, it starts this cycle of shame where it's like, how did I do this to myself? Why am I here? And people put a lot of pressure on themselves and blame themselves for a lot of things that were out of their control. So moving from attachment, we're going to go in deeper with child abuse. So trigger warning on that. Um, starting off with similar to what we just talked about with internal sense of security, um, abuse children interpret objectively safe situations as dangerous, which can put them in a lot of really uncomfortable and not great situations. So there's a quote first on page 108. Um, I'm going to read a good chunk of this. So essentially um, they, uh, Vander Kolk and another psychologist created a set of test cards um, kind of similar to like a Rorschach test to show kiddos and try to see what they would interpret from those cards. So um, on page 108, he writes, one of our cards depicted a family scene, two smiling kids watching dad repair a card. Every child who looked at it commented on the danger to the man lying underneath the vehicle while the control children stored, told stories with benign endings. The card would get fixed and maybe dad and the kids would drive to McDonald's. The traumatized kids came up with gruesome tales end quote. So that's on page 108 to 109. Um, and then, um, again, he says that there was more that happened with, with all these other pictures that, um, objectively were were not unsafe pictures. And these traumatized kiddos came up with full narratives as to why these were, you know, terrifying images. Um, on page 110, he writes, the responses of the clinic children were alarming. The most innocent images stirred up intense feelings of danger, aggression, sexual arousal, and terror. We had not selected these photos because they had some hidden hidden meaning that sensitive people could uncover. They were ordinary images of everyday life. We could only conclude that for abused children, the whole world is filled with triggers. As long as they can imagine only disastrous, disastrous outcomes to relatively benign situations, anybody walking into a room, any stranger, any image on a screen or on a billboard might be perceived as a harbinger of catastrophe. In this light of bizarre behavior, in the, oh gosh, reading, in this light, the bizarre behavior of the kids at the children's clinic made perfect sense. End quote. And that is on page 110. So you have kiddos that their whole lives have been pretty scary, like pretty scary. And, um, that creates a world of really scary things that perhaps to a child who had not experienced trauma, those things wouldn't be scary. Um, he also then explained uh, a similar study in which he showed kids who have been abused and kids who hadn't, um, faces and, um, the children who, weren't abused, didn't really seem to react as much to the faces, but the kids who were abused um, kind of responded to those those faces as like really drastic. So even if it was just like a little bit of an angry face, the kids found it very, very, very frightening. Um, so 
on page 116, he writes, this is the one reason abused children become so easily defensive or scared. Imagine what it's like to make your way through a sea of faces in the school corridor, trying to figure out who might assault you. Children who overreact to their peers' aggression, who don't pick up on other kids' needs, who easily shut down or lose control of their impulses are likely to be shunned and left out of sleepovers or playdates. Eventually, they may learn to cover up the fear by putting up a tough front, or they may spend more and more time alone watching TV or playing computer games, falling either further behind on interpersonal skills and emotional self-regulation. The need for attachment never lessens. Most human beings simply cannot tolerate being disengaged from others for any length of time. People who cannot connect, connect through work, friendships, or family usually find other ways of bonding, as through illnesses, lawsuits, or family feuds. Anything is preferable to the godforsaken sense of irrelevance and alienation. A few years ago on Christmas Eve, I was called to examine a 14-year-old boy at the Suffolk County Jail. Jack had been arrested for breaking into the house of neighbors who were away on vacation. The burglar alarm was howling when the police found him in the living room. The first question I asked Jack was who he expected would visit him in the jail on Christmas. Nobody, he told me. Nobody ever pays attention to me. It turned out he had been caught during break-ins numerous times before. He knew the police, and they knew him. With delight in his voice, he told me that when the cops saw him standing in the middle of the living room, they yelled, Oh my god, it's Jack again, that little motherfucker. Somebody recognized him. Someone knew his name. A little while later, Jack confessed. You know what? That is what makes it worthwhile. Kids will go to almost any length to feel seen and connected. End quote. That is on page 116 to 117. That blew my mind. I found that so interesting um, and so sad, but that this child um, just desperately wanted someone to see him. This book keeps going back to the idea that feeling seen and heard is at the root of what everyone desires in life. And so many kids who aren't receiving safety and care in their homes, they seek that elsewhere, but they seek it not just like, you know, people always assume, oh, they they want they seek it through drugs and alcohol and sex. And yeah, that might happen. But there's also such a deeper level to that. It's not just kids acting out and being troublesome kids. It's kids just desperately wanting attachment. And that that doesn't go away when you get older. If you didn't have a secure attachment as a kid, you can still find yourself falling into patterns where you're seeking attachment in really harmful ways, but you just you just want something. And like he said, anything is preferable to that godforsaken sense of irrelevance and alienation. And I think that, I mean, like he said, humans, humans want attachment. It's a basic instinct. Um, the way that we get that can be really drastically impacted by the way we grew up. Um he mentions, uh, again, on page 117, uh, quote, children have a biological instinct to attach. They have no choice. Whether their parents or caregivers are loving and caring or distant, insensitive, rejecting, or abusive, children will develop a coping style based on their attempt to at least get some of their needs met, end quote. Um, that quote hit me really hard. And I actually <laughs> read that quote to my therapist this week in therapy because that it's very relevant to me, um, but it also expands into adulthood, right? Humans have a biological instinct to attach. And so if the person that you are 
getting some source of validation from um, is doing so in a really awful way, you often will develop a coping style to still get some of your needs met. Um, In the abusive relationship that I was in, there was a very weird cycle where um, I would not be affirmed, encouraged, validated, or um, loved unless I was in a situation where I was mentally unstable and in dire need of saving. And that created this this cycle and this pattern um, where I only got encouragement if I was having an emotional meltdown. And I think subconsciously, my, my brain decided, you know what, we're going to stay here for a while. We're going to stay in this emotionally unhealthy space because this is where we get some of our needs met. And it kind of trapped me in this very weird state where I was desperately wanting to move forward and to heal and to get better and find some relief from my trauma. But anytime I took a step forward, I didn't get as much love and encouragement and validation from my partner. Um, I was also getting shit on by my partner when I wasn't having emotional meltdowns. Um, when I was doing well was when the verbal abuse started and the emotional abuse got worse. And, uh, when I would get shamed for the way that I looked, for how much I weighed, for the media I consumed, for what I chose to eat, for the friends I hung out with. I mean, everything, um, all the way down to like fashion choices. And those insults and abusive words only really came out when I was doing better. Um, When I was doing bad and I was really having a hard time and I was having panic attacks every day, My partner was the most poetic and loving and encouraging guy in the world. He would write me songs and make me feel good about myself. And then the second that I was doing good, I I was, I made him so angry and I seemed like a nuisance to him. And I, I just felt like I annoyed the crap out of him and he couldn't stand me. And he would say really awful things to me. Um, and so I think my coping style, I think I created a coping style to, to, I was getting some of my needs met, right? And so I think that my body was like, all right, well, I guess we're going to stay traumatized (laughs) because that's where we get our needs met. And when I then moved into a relationship that was healthy, um, you know, a while, a while later, it was very interesting to see that I didn't, I didn't need to be chaotic and, um, emotionally unstable to receive encouragement and validation and to get my needs met. Um, my needs were met because my partner loved me and that was kind of the end of the story. (laughs) Um, I didn't need to be a wreck and a, a, like a basket case in order to be affirmed. And that kind of rewrote a little bit of my coping style where I, I was able to see that it was possible to be in a relationship where there was love at the center of it. And it wasn't hinge. the love didn't hinge on whether or not I was emotionally stable or not. And the validation just was pretty steady Um, it wasn't, it didn't only come when I was having a meltdown. Although like, of course, validation is helpful when you're, when you're in a bad spot, but when you only validate someone when they are in need of saving, all that says is you have a hero complex and you have a savior complex. That doesn't, it's not legitimate validation. It's that the person in your life who's struggling, you like it when they're struggling because you feel superior and you feel needed and you feel in control and it's, it's just an ego hit. That's all that that is. It, it gives you an ego boost. And it 
probably becomes pretty addicting. Um, and if you're an insecure person, what's better than getting an ego boost, right? So that quote hit me really hard just on a personal level. And the only reason why I'm sharing that is because I think that that's more common than people may realize. And I, I, I always, the only time I share personal experiences and personal anecdotes are when I feel like that personal anecdote may help someone else say, Ooh, that happened to me. And I didn't know that wasn't, was, was something that other people have experienced or that that wasn't normal or healthy. Um, so then moving into being a child who's abused, um, you're trapped, right? You're a kid. <laughs> what the fuck are you going to do? You're a kid. Um, so Bessel Kolk says, Bessel Vanderkolk, sorry, sorry, Bessel, um, says on page, let's see, 135, children have no choice who their parents are, nor can they understand their parents may simply be too depressed, enraged, or spaced out to be there for them, or that their parents' behavior may have little to do with them. Children have no choice but to organize themselves to survive within the families they have. Unlike adults, they have no authorities to turn to for help. Their parents are the authorities. They cannot rent an apartment or move in with someone else. Their very survival hinges on their caregivers. And then he says uh, later in, on that page, children focus their energy on not thinking about what has happened and not feeling the residues of their own terror and panic in their bodies. Because they cannot tolerate knowing what they have experienced, they also cannot understand that their anger, terror, or collapse has anything to do with their experience. They don't talk they act and deal with their feelings by being enraged, shut down, compliant, or defiant, end quote. And that's all on page 135. Um, I found that really interesting, too. Um, I remember a distinct incident as a child where I've, I've experienced emotional abuse in my childhood. Um, and there was an incident where there was a fight and um, my older sister had a car and she was able to escape. She got in her car and she drove away. And I was too young to drive. And I remember just sitting there and I, I ran out into the backyard and then I ran out onto the street and looked around. And I think I'd packed a bag or something. I was just trying to get away and escape in some way. And I realized like, oh, I can't go anywhere. And it's just this terrible feeling of I have nowhere to go. I have no one to confide in. I have no way to get out of this because my parents are my only source of authority. Um, my parents have since handled the way that they treated me as a kid so gracefully as, a, as, um, older <laughs> parents, um, they've been so receptive to me telling them, uh, Hey, you fucked me up <laughs> and we've worked, we've been working through that for the past like three or four years as adults and it's painful as shit. Um, but it's, it's, it's very hard when you're a kiddo and your environment isn't safe or you don't feel like it's stable, but you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. And that's why I've always hated the phrase, like, because I said so, or because I'm your parent, or because I'm the only mom you're ever going to get, or the only dad you're ever going to get. I think that's so wildly abusive because the idea that, that, that plants this idea in your head as a child that your parents are infallible and that, um, they're the authorities and everything that they say is right. And, what an unhealthy, weird, uh, like dictatorship, uh, to instill on your children. If you're a parent, you're going to make mistakes just like everybody else is. But when you kind of stick that in your kid's head of, because I'm the parent, because I said so, that doesn't mean that what you're saying, the rules that you're setting are correct, moral, just, uh, objectively like reasonable. 
It just means that you're on a fucking power trip and you just want to feel in control of your kids. And that is abusive as shit. And it will fuck your kids up really hard in the long run. Um, and it's just toxic. Um, and then you have the other fact of you might feel trapped, but you also feel loyal to your parents. So Vanderkolk writes, children are also programmed to be fundamentally loyal to their caregivers, even if they are abused by them. Terror increases the need for attachment, even if the source of comfort is also the source of terror. That's on page 135. And then he writes, it took Marilyn, which is someone he talked about in the book, a long time before she was ready to talk about her abuse. She was not ready to violate her loyalty to her family. Deep inside, she felt that she still needed them to protect her against her fears. This price of loyalty is unbearable feelings of loneliness, despair, and the inevitable rage of helplessness. Rage that has nowhere to go and is redirected against the self in the form of depression, self-hatred, and self-destructive actions. Um, I found that really interesting, too. Uh, that, that quote was from page 136. Um, in college, I was sitting down with a friend my sophomore year of college, and we were reflecting on childhood, and we were both working through some trauma. And my friend was so hesitant to talk about the experiences that she had in her childhood, and she kept making just like justifications and uh, putting qualifiers in her sentence of like, well, they weren't always like that. And they're actually really good parents. And I kind of paused and I said, you know, you don't have to say that. Like you're, this is a safe space. Like I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to think that your parents are terrible people just because they did terrible things or they hurt you. Um, you're allowed to just be honest with yourself and honest with the situation if you would like to. Um and you can totally say that they hurt you. And like, I'm not going to think less of your parents. Like it's, it, it's okay. And then we got into a really honest conversation about the abuse that we both endured as kids. And, um, it was very interesting. And I've seen that as a pattern in a lot of, fa- like a lot of, uh, adults who are kind of deconstructing their childhood and realizing that it was more fucked up than they realized. And, so many people are so hesitant to like out their parents or to even hold weight for their own trauma. And I think that when you're so loyal, it it is this, this, your program to be loyal, right? Even just like biologically and instinctually, if you go back to evolution, there's a primal instinct inside of us of being loyal to your blood, right? But at what cost? Like if, if you're, if you're so loyal to your abusers, you can't actually own the weight of your own trauma and your pain because you're just holding space for your abusers. And I had that same experience with my abusive relationship and with my assault. Um, For years, every time I mentioned either of them, I always made disclaimers of like, but they were a really good person, but they went through a lot of stuff. They had a lot of trauma in their past. And when you do that, you discount the actual weight of the trauma that you endured and it cheapens it a little bit. And it's such a hard thing to go through. And it's so hard to feel loyal to people who are, who have been hurtful. Um, I don't really have an answer for that. And he didn't really either. It's just, I think it's more so just to be aware of the fact that that is a, you know, (laughs) it's it's a, it's okay. (laughs) It's an okay thing to feel. Um, in the sense of like, it's normal. Um, so then he talks about resilience and I just included this quote because it felt affirming to me. 
Um, he writes, like so many survivors of childhood abuse, Marilyn exemplified the power of the life force, the will to live and to own one's life, the energy that counteracts the annihilation of trauma. I gradually came to realize that the only thing that makes it possible to do the work of healing trauma is awe at the dedication to survival that enabled my patients to endure their abuse and then endure the dark nights of the soul that inevitably occur on the road to recovery. End quote. That is on page 137. I truly only included that quote because it just felt really affirming to me. Um, I think so often survivors of trauma don't get enough credit <laughs> for how much we fight through the pain to still stick around. Um, and I just appreciated that he validated that. Um, there's also one last little quote about childhood abuse, um, about an animal, which I had to include because, you know, Stevie. Um, so on page 152, uh, okay. Page 152. Then there's Maria, a 15 year old Latina, one of one of the more than half a million kids in the United States who grow up in foster care and residential treatment programs. Maria is obese and aggressive. She has a history of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse and has lived in more than 20 out-of-home placements since age 8. The pile of medical charts that arrive with her describe her as mute, vengeful, impulsive, reckless, and self-harming, with extreme mood swings and, a, and an explosive temper. She describes herself as garbage, worthless, rejected. After multiple suicide attempts, Maria was placed in one of our residential treatment centers. Initially, she was mute and withdrawn and became violent when people got too close to her. After other approaches failed and to work, she was placed in an equine therapy program where she groomed her horse daily and learned simple dressage. Dressage? I don't know how to pronounce that word. Two years later, I spoke with Maria at her high school graduation. She had been accepted by a four-year college. When I asked her what helped her the most, she answered, the horse I took care of. She told me that the, she first started to feel safe with her horse. He was there every day, patiently waiting for her, seemingly glad upon her approach. She started to feel a visceral connection with another creature and began to talk to him like a friend. Gradually, she started talking with the other kids in the program and eventually with her counselor. And I'm going to cry. Um, <laughs> that's on page 152 to 153. I only included that because it made me think about Stevie. And that's what Stevie has done for me. And it just made me happy. So. That's all. That's the only reason why that's in here. Um, okay. And now we've got mental maps. So we got relationship maps and emotional maps. So relationship maps, um, when talking about childhood trauma, Vanderkolk says our relationship maps are implicit, etched in the emotional brain and not reversible simply by understanding how they were created. You may realize that your fear of intimacy has something to do with your mother's postpartum depression or with the fact that she herself was molested as a child. But that alone is unlikely to open you to happy, trusting engagement with others, end quote. That's on page 124. Um, I found that interesting because that kind of relates back to the talk therapy point with Freud of just knowing that something is a connection, just being self-aware doesn't necessarily heal you. Um, that's been a really weird learning process for me. Um, I entered a, a time period where I became self-aware for like the first time and then just now I'm constantly evaluating things and constantly trying to gain more self-awareness. And it's really frustrating to know a lot of the connections and be like, well, I know that this caused this. And I know that this is why I'm like this and still not necessarily have a fix to your problem. Um, that's okay. That's normal. There's a lot of different work that has to go into trying to actually heal that trauma, which we'll, we will get into uh, next episode once uh 
Vanderkolt goes into treatments and um, how to heal. Um, but yeah, and then emotional maps um, on page 129. Which, let me get there. Um, okay, so emotional maps. We've got he says, uh, as children, we start off at the center of our own universe where we interpret everything that happens from an egocentric vantage point. If our parents or grandparents keep telling us we're the cutest, most delicious thing in the world, we don't question their judgment. We must be exactly that. <laughs> and deep down, no matter what else we learn about ourselves, we will carry that sense with us that we are basically adorable. As a result, if we later hook up with someone who treats us badly, we will be outraged. It won't feel right. It's not familiar. It's not like home. But if we are abused or ignored in childhood or grow up in a family where sexuality is treated with disgust, our inner map contains a different message. Our sense of self is marked by contempt and humiliation, and we are more likely to think he or she has my number and fail to protest if we are mistreated. Uh, what he means by number is like, uh, I think he means like rating of trauma because um, he was talking about that prior. But yeah, uh, end quote. That is page 129 to 130. I found that really interesting because I think that I never thought of it, thought of it like that. Like I know people who like when people treat them poorly, they're like, what the fuck? I am worth more than that. And I get that way some way sometimes, but a lot of times I get treated poorly and I'm like, yeah, like makes sense. And it's so interesting to think about the fact that it, it, it comes from, you know, this, this place of, it doesn't, why would, why would you know any different? If you're not treated great as a child, that's what sets your expectations, right? Um, but there is hope, which I always appreciate when there's hope. So on page 131, he says, this doesn't mean, however, that our maps can't be modified by experience. A deep love relationship, particularly during adolescence, when the brain once again goes through a period of exponential change, truly can transform us. So can the birth of a child, as our babies often teach us how to love. Adults who were abused or neglected as children can still learn the beauty of intimacy and mutual trust or have a deep spiritual experience that opens them to a larger universe. In contrast, previously uncontaminated childhood maps can become so distorted by an adult rape or assault that all roads are rerouted into terror and despair. These responses are not reasonable and therefore cannot be changed by simply reframing irrational beliefs. Our maps of the world are encoded in the emotional brain. And changing them means you have to reorganize that part of the central nervous system, the subject of, tr of the treatment section of this book, end quote. So, um, yeah, so he's going to go over that next quote. It's so funny because so much of this book, uh, parts like one through four are basically just like, here are all of your issues and here's some really intense, sad knowledge. And then he doesn't actually give answers until the next part of the book. So if you're feeling hopeless while listening to this, like you're not alone. I get it. Uh, there's going to be some serious treatment and hope and solutions in, in the next chapter. So just, you know, be aware of that. But um, yeah, so, uh, that's kind of what I was referring to as well. When I, um, the, the reframing of our map, um, when I was referring to, um, uh, my experience with my, my partner, um, at the time of, uh, like after my abusive relationship, how I started to kind of relearn what relationships are supposed to look like. Um, I think a lot of the trauma that I even experienced in my abusive relationship, uh, I'd learned as a kid. 
And so experiencing a really deep love that was healthy helped reroute a lot of things in my brain where it was like, hmm, this is possible and it it makes sense and it's healthy and I can do it. Um, so yeah, there is hope there, um, which <laughs> I understand that there's a lot of this book that feels like it's just like, your life is doomed to suck. And I, I promise you that the chapter after this will give more clarity into that where it, it won't just be everything sucks and everything is doomed to suck. Um, so that's the emotional map and relational map um, portion. Uh, and then we're going to go into trauma reactions and symptoms, which we talked a little bit about in the last episode. So we're going to start with flashbacks. Um, there is a woman named Marilyn, which I've mentioned already. Um, and she didn't remember her trauma, right? Which is common. Uh, people don't think it's common, but it's common. It happened to me. Um, so I'm not going to give Marilyn's whole background because we just don't need to. Um, but basically, uh, she started dating a guy and, um, when they were sleeping, uh, he touched just like barely big bumped her in in their sleep and she freaked out and started like beating him up. Um, which seems like a really intense reaction, but it's more common than you'd expect. And so, uh, Vanderkolk writes, she repeated that she'd always felt uptight and spaced out when she was alone with a man. And there had been other times where she'd come to in her apartment, cowering in a corner, unable to remember clearly what happened. End quote. Uh, that's on page 126. As someone who has experienced that, I have experienced really drastic, um, triggering flashbacks where I, I have hallucinated and thought that my partner was my assaulter, um, I've had a lot of different experiences where my brain really fucks with me and the shame that comes with that afterwards is so horribly upsetting. Um, because your, your body's just reacting to protect you. And then to have to kind of like come back with your tail between your legs after that and try to explain as to why you just beat up on somebody is, is really traumatizing. Um, she also goes into self-harm, which I'm going to give a quick trigger warning here. Uh, so he writes, a few years earlier, she found that she could relieve her numbness by scratching herself with a razor blade. But she'd become frightened when she found out that she was cutting herself more and more deeply and more and more often to get relief. End quote. That is on page 126. Um, that can often come with the idea of feeling numb and wanting to feel something. Um, he... It, you know, it, it makes you feel something. <laughs> it doesn't make you feel what you would like to feel, but it makes you feel something. As someone who self-harmed for quite a while, uh, that was uh, relatable to me. And then he talks about her physical symptoms. So her, she lost her eyesight, which I found wild. Um, she realized that her eyesight was, eyesight was beginning to go and she sought out medical help. And after being evaluated, she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that was attacking her vision. Um, and Vanderkolk writes, I was appalled. Marilyn was the third year or th hello, third person that year who I, whom I'd suspected of having an incest history who was then diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, a disease in which the body starts attacking itself. End quote. That's on page 128. Um, I, that blew my mind. And then he says, uh, uh, continued, uh, on page 129, 
Our study showed that on a deep level, the bodies of incest victims have trouble distinguishing between danger and safety. This means that the imprint of past trauma does not consist only of distorted perceptions of information coming from the outside. The organism itself has a problem knowing how to feel safe. The past is impressed not only on their minds and in the misinterpretations of innocuous events, as when Marilyn attacked Michael because he accidentally touched her in her sleep, but also on the very core of their beings in the safety of their bodies. End quote. That's on page 129. So basically, these these incest victims were, um, and he, he saw this multiple times in his studies where people's bodies started attacking themselves, which is so wild. Um, and just once again, to me, that might be freaky to some people. To me, it's validating because to me, it's like, hey, there's science and like a reason why your body is doing things and your body is physically reacting to your trauma. Um, so yeah, that, that might be something that people find upsetting, but I think it's cool. And then he also talks about weight, um, which I found this perspective very interesting. Um, he writes, Filetti points out points out that obesity, which is considered a major public health problem, may in fact be a personal solution for many. Consider the implications. If you mistake someone's solution for a problem to be eliminated, not only are they likely to fail treatment as often as happens in addiction programs, but other problems may emerge. And that's on page 149. And I'm going to read a little more from page 149 that gives some context to that. Um, so... Uh, okay, so we've got on page 149. Uh, one female rape victim told Filetti, overweight is overlooked, and that's the way I need to be. Uh, weight can protect men as well. Filetti recalls two guards at a state prison in his obesity program. They promptly regained the weight they had lost because they felt a lot safer being the biggest guy on the cell block. Another male patient became obese after his parents divorced, and he moved in with his violent alcoholic grandfather. He explained, it wasn't that I ate because I was hungry and all of that. It was just a place for me to feel safe. All the way from kindergarten, I used to get beat up all the time. When I got the weight back on, it didn't happen anymore. End quote. Um, that's on page 149. I found this really interesting because I think in general, society has such a misunderstanding of trauma. And I'm not saying that anytime that you put on weight, it has to be because you've been traumatized. Um, I think that itself is a really harmful uh, stereotype that assumes that uh, fatness is simply a reaction to trauma. And that is not always the case. Um, and I think that has some serious fat phobic roots. But I think that it is also really interesting to acknowledge that society has such a skewed and misinformed perspective of trauma. And a lot of times solutions that society thinks like, like society thinks that certain things are solutions when they might actually be causing further problems or society thinks that some things are problems where they might actually be solutions. Um, and I think part of that is just that there's a very, um, kind of singular mindset to look at trauma in society. And a lot of times you kind of got to think out of the box. Um, I think the best example I can give is I remember at one point, this is just mental health in general, but I saw something about a girl who said that she always had really bad OCD compulsions because she uh, never could remember if she unplugged her flat iron. And her therapist said, why don't you just unplug your flat iron and take it with you to work? 
like put it in your backpack and that way you know that you you know that you took it with you um which i found so funny because what a simple solution but in society's eyes like that looks crazy and that's why the girl didn't initially think of it because it was out of the box and it was out of the norm and so it didn't seem like a feasible solution but like so what if it helps you like go for it um i just i do want to reiterate once again that I think that this this perspective on weight is um, beneficial. I also do think that it is very toxic to view anyone who is a fat person um, to view them as like just a symptom of an, a reaction to trauma. That that is not a healthy viewpoint. And once again, I think that's a very fat phobic perspective to come at it from. Um, I just want to reiterate that one more time so that doesn't get confused. Um, but yeah, so those are kind of trauma reactions. Um, and then we go into memory, which I love this section because your girl struggled with her memory so horribly and I was so confused and I appreciate the way that he approaches this. So Marilyn, we talked about Marilyn, right? Um, she remembered when she heard someone else recount their trauma. She remembered that she was molested as a kid. Um, but as Vanderkolk writes, his molestation had scared her beyond her capacity to endure. So she had needed to push it out of her memory bank end quote. That's on page 133. Um, and then he writes again, part of them victims continues to insist that they must have made up the experience or that they are exaggerating. All of them are ashamed about what happened to them and they blame themselves on some level. So they firmly believe that these terrible things were done to them because they are terrible people. End quote. That's on page 134. Uh, as someone who didn't remember my assault for multiple years, uh, I have actually said on the podcast that I think that my memory, my brain didn't have the capacity, so I pushed it out of my memory. Um, so it was really cool to see that in writing by a psychologist that that's actually something that can happen because I, I never heard that from a psychologist or a therapist. I just decided that that's what happened. So it was affirming to hear it from him. Um, but yeah, I think that... Um, our, our minds are so precious and only can hold so much sometimes. And sometimes they can't handle certain traumas. Um, but with that, because sometimes when we forget and then we remember it's very fucked up and it's such a mind fuck to all of a sudden remember something and be like, Oh my God, that uh, I remember this and it's so harmful and it's hurtful. That's very confusing. Um, and I'm speaking firsthand on that. Um, so we then have a guy named Julian um, I'm going to read you guys a little bit of Julian's story. This is, uh, like I just said, um, we're, this is about uh, molestation. So a trigger warning here, um, on page 174, Vander Kolk writes, a priest named Shanley was under suspicion for molesting children. Hadn't Julian once told her about a father Shanley who had been his parish priest back in Newton? Did he do anything to you? She asked. Julian initially recalled Father Shanley as a kind man who'd been very supportive after his parents got divorced. But as the conversation went on, he started to go into a panic. He suddenly saw Shanley silhouetted in a door frame, his hands stretched out at 45 degrees, staring at Julian as he urinated. Overwhelmed by emotion, he told Rachel, I've got to go. He called his fight his flight chief who came over accompanied by the first sergeant. After he met with the two of them, they took him to the base captain. Julian recalls telling him, do you know what's going on in Boston? It happened to me too. The moment he heard himself say those words, he knew for certain that Shanley had molested him, even though he did not remember the details. 
Julian felt extremely embarrassed about being so emotional. He had always been a strong kid who kept things to himself. Um, a little later, he says, over the subsequent week, images kept flooding into his mind, and he was afraid of breaking down completely. He thought about taking a knife and plunging it into his leg just to stop the mental pictures. Then the panic attack started to accompany, started to be accompanied by seizures, which he called epileptic fits. He scratched his body until he bled. He constantly felt hot, sweaty, and agitated. Between panic attacks, he felt like a zombie. He was observing himself from a distance as if what he was experiencing was actually happening to somebody else. That's on page 174. So, um... I think that I'm going to, I'm, there's going to be a few stories about people's memory. And I think that it's interesting because memory is different for everybody. Um, but sometimes you remember things. Sometimes you remember the details. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just have a feeling that you know that it happened. It's all very convoluted and nuanced and confusing. Um, but what happened to Julian was very similar to what happened to me. Um, I was talking to someone about assault and then realized it happened to me. And then I started experiencing uh, seizures. I found it really interesting the way that my story kind of mirrored his, um, especially the seizure part, because I've never had anybody have that. Um, but yeah, so then we go into another study, um, another client um, or patient named Nancy, um, and she had a C-section but was awake accidentally, which holy shit, how terrifying. And there was a lot of trauma and a lot of trauma in her body. And um, Vanderkolk writes, it was as if the door was slightly pushed open, allowing the intrusion. There was a mixture of curiosity and avoidance. I continue to have irrational fears. And that's what Nancy said um, on page 198. Um, often once the door to your memories cracks open, those memories can come flooding in. Um, it's like your your brain unlocks a little a little chest of memories and it just starts like pouring out. Um, but memory is very confusing. And if you are someone who's experienced trauma, you don't always have clear memories. And that can be really frustrating and very uh, uh, confusing, but also just make you doubt yourself. Um, so on page 193, uh, Vanderkolk talks about recovered memory, which or I'm sorry, 192 to 193. I really appreciated this. Um, one of the most interesting studies of her past memory was conducted by Dr. Linda Meyer Williams, which began when she was a graduate student in sociology at the university of Pennsylvania in the early 1970s. Williams interviewed 206 girls between the ages of 10 and 12 who had been admitted to a hospital emergency room following sexual abuse. Their laboratory tests, as well as the interviews with the children and their parents were kept in hospitals, medical records. 17 years later, Williams was able to track down 136 of the children, now adults, with whom she con conducted extensive follow-up interviews. More than a third of the women, 38%, did not recall the abuse that was documented in their medical records, while only 15 women, 12%, said they had never been abused as children. More than two-thirds, 68%, reported other incidents of sexual childhood abuse, Women who were younger at the time of the incident and those who were molested by someone they knew were more likely to have forgotten their abuse. The study also examined the reliability of recovered memories. One in 10 women, 16% of those who recalled the abuse, reported that they had forgotten it at some point in the past but later remembered that it had happened. In comparison with the women who had always remembered their molestation, those with a prior period of forgetting were younger at the time of their abuse and were less likely to have received support from their mothers. 
Williams also determined that the recovered memories were approximately as accurate as those that had never been lost. All of the women's memories were accurate for the central facts of the incidents, but none of their stories precisely matched every detail that was documented in their charts. Williams' findings are supported by recent neuroscience research that shows that memories are retrieved and tend to return to the memory bank with modifications. As long as the memory is inaccessible, the mind is unable to change it. But as long as, as soon as a story starts being told, particularly if it is being told repeatedly, it changes. The act of telling itself changes the tale. The mind cannot help but make meaning out of what it knows, and the meaning we make of our lives changes how and what we remember. End quote. Um, that's page 192 to 193. So I think what's important about that and what's validating about that is that there is a literal study that shows that um, the bulk of that memory that these women had recalled was accurate. There are details that change. There were um, modifications made to the story, but the bulk of it was legit. Um, I found that so validating because – I constantly question whether or not I'm just a big fat liar and my memories are fake. (laughs) Um, So I found that very validating. Um, Once again, science, 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 science behind things just really makes me feel great. Um, And then there was another um, study, uh, which he talks about on page 193 to 194, um, Vanderkolk says, consider what is known as the lost in the mall experiment. For example, academic researchers have shown that it is relatively easy to implant memories of events that never took place, such as having been lost in a shopping mall as a child. About 25% of the subjects in these studies later recall that they were frightened and even fill in missing details. But such recollections involve none of the visceral terror that a lost child would actually experience. End quote. The reason why that is important is because the terror is what you feel when you have flashbacks. So an implanted memory, a fake memory, you're not feeling the legitimate feelings that you would have felt in that memory because the memory didn't happen. If you have a real memory, a legitimate memory that did happen, you get these visceral feelings of how you felt during that trauma. That can't be made up. I think that's the part that's super validating because I know so many survivors that were like, did it happen? I've written many posts and posted things about, did it happen? Did it happen? Did it happen? And it's so common to feel like you just made it up. But I think it's very encouraging to know that, um, scientifically there's some, you know, there's some logistics behind the fact that your memories are, are, are legit to an extent. Um, He also talks about like lab memories and basically the idea that um, these studies that take place, they they can't be replicated. Like trauma can't be replicated in a lab basically because the terror and helplessness that you have with like PTSD isn't going to be – it can't be replicated. You can show – he talks about a a study where they show college students a really uh, horrible, violent film. And yeah, it it gives very extreme reactions – but it didn't cause people to develop symptoms of PTSD because they didn't actually traumatize people. Um, so yeah, I think that that's interesting too. Cause a lot of the studies that we have are, are very murky. Um, and then he talks about dual memory. Um, so 
Okay, this is a very long excerpt, so sorry. Okay, we're going to start on page 194. Uh, After we introduced ourselves, oh, sorry, (laughs) I skipped a part. In 1994, I and my colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital decided to undertake a systematic study comparing how people recall benign experiences and horrific ones. After we introduced ourselves, we start off by taking or by asking each participant, can you tell us about an event in your life that you think you will always remember, but is not traumatic? One participant lit up and said the day my daughter was born. Others mentioned their wedding day, playing on a winning sports team or being valedictorian at their high school graduation. Then we asked them to focus on the specific sensory details of those events, such as, are you ever somewhere and suddenly have a vivid image of what your husband looked like on your wedding day? The answers were always negative. How about what your husband's body felt like on your wedding day. We got some odd looks on that one. We continued. Do you ever have a vivid, precise recollection of the speech you gave as valedictorian? Do you ever have an intense sensation recalling the birth of your first child? The replies were all negative. Then we asked them about the traumas that had brought them into the study. Many of them rapes. Do you ever suddenly remember how your rapist smelled? We asked, do you ever experience the same physical sensations you had when you were raped? Such questions precipitated powerful emotional responses. Uh, This is why I cannot go to parties anymore because the smell of alcohol on someone's breath makes me feel like I'm being raped all over again. Or I can no longer make love to my husband because when he touches me in a particular way, I feel like I'm being raped again. There were two major differences between how people talked about the memories of positive versus traumatic experiences, how the memories were organized and their physical reactions to them. Weddings, births, and graduations were all recalled as events from the past stories of the beginning, middle and end. Nobody said that there were periods when they completely forgotten any of these events. In contrast, the traumatic memories were disorganized. Our subjects remembered some details all too clearly, but could not recall the sequence of events or other vital details. We also asked the participants how they recalled their trauma at three points in time, right after it happened, when they were most troubled by their symptoms, and during the week before the study. All of our traumatized participants said that they had not been able to tell anybody precisely what had happened immediately following the event. Um, end quote. So that's page 194 to 195. He then continues, um, saying on page 196, in essence, our study confirmed that dual memory system that Janae and his colleagues at the Salpetraire, I don't know how to pronounce that, had described more than a hundred years earlier. Traumatic memories are fundamentally different from the stories we tell about the past. They are dissociated. The different sensations that entered the brain at the time of a trauma are not properly assembled into a story, a piece of autobiography. Perhaps the most important finding in our study was that remembering the trauma was, with all its associated effects does not, as Brewer and Freud claimed back in 1893, necessarily resolve it. Our research did not support the idea that language can substitute for action. Most of our study participants could tell a coherent story and also experience the pain associated with those stories, but they kept being haunted by the unbearable images and physical sensations. He then later writes, as we will see, finding words to describe what happened, what has happened to you can be transformative, but it does not always abolish flashbacks or improve concentration, stimulate vital involvement in your life, or reduce hypersensitivity to disappointments and perceived injuries, end quote. That's page 196. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to explain that too much. Essentially you're, you're, you have a, you have a dual memory. Um, you can remember, you remember, oh gosh, words. You remember, um, uh, traumatic memories and non-traumatic memories very differently. Your brain intakes them very differently. Um, 
I'm I got to keep going because we're we're really we're we're going long on time here. Um, he then talks about a dissociation. Um, I in the last episode mentioned that depersonalization and associate dissociation were the same trauma reaction. I, I was wrong on that. He clarified in this in this uh, chapter. Um, so we got page one twenty three. Okay, so we've got um Karen. Is it Karen? Carlin, <laughs> sorry, Carlin, uh, Carlin Lyons Ruth and dissociation. So on page 123, it says Lyons Ruth was particularly interested in the phenomenon of dissociation, which is manifested in feeling lost, overwhelmed, abandoned, and disconnected from the world and seeing oneself as unloved, empty, helpless, trapped, and weighed down. Later, he writes, Lyons Ruth concludes that infants who are not truly seen and known by their mothers are at high risk to grow into adolescents who are unable to know and see. Uh, and then he says, but if your caregivers ignore your needs or resent your very existence, you learn to anticipate rejection and withdrawal. You cope as well as you can by blocking out your mother's hostility or neglect and act as if it doesn't matter. But your body is likely to remain in a state of high alert and prepared prepared to ward off blows, deprivation, or abandonment. Dissociation means simultaneously knowing and not knowing. End quote. Uh, further down the page on 123, he writes, when you don't feel real, nothing matters, which makes it impossible to protect yourself from danger. One may resort to extremes in an effort to feel something, even cutting yourself with a razor blade or getting into fistfights with strangers. Carlin's research showed that dissociation is learned early. Later abuse or other traumas did not account for dissociative symptoms in young adults. Abuse and trauma accounted for many other problems, but not for chronic dissociation or aggression against self. The critical underlying issue was that these patients didn't know how to feel safe. Lack of safety within the early caregiving relationship led to an impaired sense of an inner reality, excessive clinging, and self-damaging behavior. Uh, end quote. That is on page 123. Um, so, uh, dissociation, essentially, you learned it as a kid because you're trying to disconnect from your body from whatever is going on in your life, and then that can lead to some serious disconnection as an adult. Um, we've got Marilyn again. So Marilyn explained that um, she would put her head in the clouds on page 134. Um when she was trying to think about her, her trauma and huge trigger warning for molestation here. Uh, she says when her father, or I'm sorry, Vanderkolk says when her father had started to touch her, she made herself disappear. She floated up to the ceiling, looking down on some little girl in the bed. She was glad that it was not really her. It was some other little girl who was being molested. Look at these head, looking at these heads separated from their bodies by an impenetrable fog really opened up my eyes to the experience of dissociation, which is so common among, among incest victims End quote, that's on page 134. Um, this is really common for trauma survivors to kind of feel this sensation of being separated from their bodies. Um, which I think is why so much work with trauma is trying to get you back in your body and feeling your body and feeling things again and identifying certain sensations in your body with feelings because so often we can really disconnect and just be very far away from our bodies. Um, that's all I'm going to say on that because I want to get into diagnostics before we – I, I want to aim for ending at like an hour 45 if I can because we're already at an hour 30. Um, so Diagnostics. He starts off by talking about genetics. So um, 
essentially, I'm just going to summarize this because I don't think that the excerpt is entirely necessary, but essentially, um, insight in psychology and psychiatry, psychiatry, hello. Um, they really wanted to find a genetic link between mental illness and like your genes, um, which makes sense, but it was, you know, they're trying to find some very clear cut way to explain why people were dysfunctional and had issues, um, which there, there really wasn't a legitimate, uh, genetic, you know, link. Um, there's definitely some genetic predispositions, um, for certain illnesses, but they predispose people to, to traumatic stress, but it is not, the link is not as strong as people assume. Um, nor is the whole chemical imbalance thing. And then he starts talking about misdiagnostics, misdiagnoses, um, and talking about how harmful they are and how common they are. Um, I'm going through this with my therapist right now because I got misdiagnosed as a borderline personality disorder. And, um, that, that actually got mentioned in the book of the fact that a lot of people with trauma get misdiagnosed, um, with borderline personality disorder. Um, on page 142, Vander Kolk writes, the data had convinced him that unless you can understand the language of trauma and abuse, you cannot really understand BPD. Uh, but he talks about the fact that, um, this is what page 138. Uh, if their doctors focus on their mood swings, they will be identified as bipolar and prescribed lithium or valproate. If the professionals are most impressed with their despair, they will be told they are suffering from major depression and given antidepressants. If the doctors focus on their restlessness and lack of attention, they may be categorized as ADHD and treated with Ritalin or other stimulants. And if the clinic staff happens to take a trauma history and the patient actually volunteers the relevant information, he or she might receive the diag diagnosis of PTSD. Um, and then he says, psychiatry as a subspecialty of medicine aspires to define mental illness as precisely as, let's say, cancer of the pancreas or streptopical infection of the lungs. I don't think I said that word right, but whatever. However, given the complexity of the mind, brain, and human attachment systems, we have not come even close to achieving that sort of precision. Understanding what is wrong with people currently is more of a question of the mindset of the practitioner and what the insurance companies will pay for than the verifiable objective facts, end quote. That's on page 138 and 139. So basically... <sighs> psychology has really fucked up and psychiatry has really fucked up in the way that they define mental illness. Um, they want to put people on a box of a diagnosis that makes sense. And often it, you can have a combo of a ton of different things and be very, um, be all over the place on kind of the spectrum. I've mentioned this, uh, in the last episode about the fact that, uh, We've, we've gotten there with autism where there's now an autism spectrum, but in reality, there should be a spectrum for all mental illnesses um, because your symptoms are not just going to match someone else's necessarily. That's why the DSM is also really confusing and difficult to understand. And even more importantly, medication does not match up with that. Um, medication is not on a spectrum. And so it can become really difficult to treat people when they have you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And there's, there's not medication that works to treat all of those things simultaneously. Um, and then he brings up complex PTSD, which I did not know he was going to bring up in this book, but if you would like to hit, learn more about complex PTSD, you can read this book. You can also listen to episode 27 of the podcast where I have Sarah, 
um, of breaking down CPTSD because we talk about CPTSD. Um, Vander Kolk uh, tried to create a new diagnosis, uh, disorders of extreme stress, not otherwise specified, and complex PTSD in the DSM. And um, he conducted multiple studies and lots of research, and then he presented it to be included in the DSM-4, and it was not. Um, He says, to this day, after 20 years and four subsequent revisions, the DSM and the entire system based on it fail victims of child abuse and neglect, just as they ignored it in the plight of veterans, uh, just, just as they ignored the plight of veterans before PTSD was introduced back in 1980. That's on page 145. Then, um... They attempted to introduce a diagnosis for a developmental trauma disorder, and the APA slash the DSM-5 denied it, saying that no new diagnostic was required to fill a missing diagnostic niche, uh, page 161, to which Vanderkolk says, one million children who are abused and neglected every year in the United States are a, di- are a diagnostic niche, question <laughs> mark, um, on page 161. So this brings up the issues of diagnostics and the way that you get diagno- diagnosed is the DSM. And the DSM is sitting here ign- completely ignoring some really significant um, information. Uh, if, you, if you read this chapter, there, there's so much uh, science behind just, you know, all these different symptoms and studies and uh, issues with these kiddos that we're experiencing all these symptoms and, and then people who experience complex PTSD and the DSM and the APA denied it, uh, which you can tell by this book that Vander Kolk is not really a fan of APA. APA is the American psychological association, by the way. Um, but yeah, after, um, so the, the thing with them denying the diagnostic or the diagnosis for developmental trauma disorder, which is, uh, would be focused on children, um, who have histories of abuse, um, because they're the way that they show up, the way their trauma shows up is different than the way that PTSD and adult adults, um, presents itself. That was in 2009, 2009 is when the DSM denied that, which blows my brain apart. I swear to God, it blows my brain apart. Um, <laughs> the fact that it was that early, like ugh, that, literally, it blows my brain apart. Um, oh God, it really upsets me. But then we've got the DSM-5, which he also roasts, which I appreciate. Um, we've got on page 166, he says, even before the DSM-5 was released, the American Journal of Psychiatry published the results of validity tests of various new diagnoses, which indicated that the DSM largely lacks what in the world of science is known as reliability, the ability to produce consistent replicable results. In other words, it lacks scientific validity. He then says, could the fact that the APA had earned $100 million on the DSM-4 and is slated to take in a similar amount with the DSM-5 because all mental health practitioners, many lawyers, and other professionals will be obligated to purchase the latest edition be the reason why we have this new, new diagnostic system? Question mark. Diagnostic reliability isn't an abstract issue. If doctors can't agree on what ails their patients, there's no way they can provide proper treatment. When there's no relationship between diagnosis and the cure, a mislabeled patient is bound to be a mistreated patient. 
You would not want to have your appendix removed when you are suffering from a kidney stone, and you would not want to have someone labeled as oppositional when, in fact, his behavior is rooted in an attempt to protect himself against the real danger, end quote. Uh, then he talks about a statement released in 2011 um, from the British Psychological Society where they're roasting the APA. <laughs> um, but I, I mention all of this because it, it it's frustrating. Um, we don't have tools to treat trauma in a medical sense right now because the DSM-5 and the American Psychological Association has deeply failed people who have suffered from mental illnesses and people who uh, like trauma survivors, because they're not giving us the tools to help treat. I love the quote. I love the way he phrases this um, with the kidney stone thing, because like I was being treated for borderline personality disorder and I didn't fucking have it. <laughs> and of course that wasn't helping me because that's like treating a kidney stone or having your appendix removed when you're suffering from a kidney stone. That's not going to help you. Um, but yeah, just truly so frustrating. And if you're feeling like, you know, your psychiatrist isn't understanding you, you're not getting help, please know that like that's valid. And yes, a lot of the times psychiatry is really fucked up. That's the other reason why I really do not like relying on the DSM for diagnostics, because as we just learned, the DSM has some very skewed intentions and they make a a lot of money off this thing. And whenever there is that much money involved, you've got some serious capitalism and like consumerism that is mixed into what should be a pure thing that is simply aimed at helping people. Once you mix that much money into it, it becomes tainted and uh, often skewed. And there's often alter ulterior motives. Uh, so yeah. Um, and then this is the last last thing I will say. Um, he also mentions something about society and PTSD when it comes to uh, cops, kind of, which I found this very interesting. Uh, on page 184, he writes, In 1989, I reported on a Vietnam veteran who yearly staged an armed robbery on the exact anniversary of a buddy's death. He would put a finger in his pants pocket, claim that it was a pistol, and tell a shopkeeper to empty his cash register, giving him plenty of time to alert the police. This unconscious attempt to commit suicide by cop came to an end after a judge referred the veteran to me for treatment. Once we had dealt with his guilt about his friend's death, there was no, there were no further reenactments. Such incidents raise a critical question. How can doctors, police officers, or social workers recognize that someone is suffering from traumatic stress as long as they reenact rather than remember? How can patients themselves identify the source of this behavior? If their history is not known, they are likely to be labeled as crazy or punished as criminals rather than be helped to integrate the past. End quote. That's on page 184. I'm going to end on that. Um, sorry, Stevie's running laps around the house. I'm going to end on that because I think with everything going on in society right now, um, there's been so much talk about defunding the police. And yes, I'm going to get political here. Um there's been so much talk about defunding the police and about um, people just having an absolute cow over the idea of that. That is quite literally what Vanderkolk is suggesting. It's the idea that if police don't have the right tools and the right information and the right um, training, they're going to assume that people are crazy or criminals instead of actually being able to support them through mental health crises. And 
that is so much of what defunding the police is. It's the idea that we're going to take, why would we be giving money to police officers when they, to handle mental health crises and suicide calls and domestic violence when they don't have the right resources or training or education to be able to handle that in a way that is actually going to be beneficial for the victims. They don't. And, uh, people think of it as like a, a diss on police, which, uh, yes, uh, there should be some serious conversation around the way that police officers have drastically harmed, uh, communities, specifically, uh, communities that are lower income and specifically communities that are people of color, um, specifically black individuals. But there's also a, a, why would you try to give somebody a job where they don't have the tools to complete that job? That's not a diss. If you're taking away that responsibility, that's just a realistically, you don't have the tools to deal with this. So we're going to give it to somebody who does. Um, which, yeah, I just appreciated that was in the book because Vander Kolk was very ahead of his time. So I know that was a lot of information. I know we're coming up on an hour 40 here. I'm sorry. Um, but I hope that that made sense. I hope that it wasn't just me rambling. Um, it's very hard to condense this much information into something that is palatable and understandable. Um, but I hope that I did a decent job. Uh, next week, we're going to have an episode about treatment. Thank God we're going to get into the, the actual meat of how the hell do we fix this? Um, which I'm excited for, for selfish reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that this helps. I hope that I'm, I mean, I might just be talking to kind of a, a wall with these episodes. I hope that I'm not, I hope that they're helping someone to some extent. Um, but yeah, I would really suggest reading the book as always. Um, link is in the description below and that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And then as always to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath. And remember you can always learn, you can always grow and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. And if you're too tired, with your trauma right now, you can do it later. I'll see you guys next week.